Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Friday Medical Grand Rounds. Just uh, a reminder, and I think it's posted over there, the activity code for today is small s7cz. In order to get your CME credits, they'll be up on the wall uh, for you to see again. Um, without further ado, I am delighted to ask Antonia Altamari to come to the podium to introduce today's speaker. She's particularly well qualified for today's topic. Antonia is an assistant professor of medicine in the section of infectious disease and international health. And she is, of course, the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health Systems epidemiologist. And so, Antonia, please come and tell us about today's very special speaker. I apologize up front of having to leave in about a half hour, uh, so you'll see me, unfortunately, get up and leave. But I, I mentioned that this is archived, and if anyone else has to leave early, it will be available for us to see afterward. Antonia. Good morning, everyone. It's my pleasure to introduce Armando Nahum, um, who is the co-founder and president of the Safe Care Campaign. Armando and his wife, Victoria, established the Safe Care Campaign in 2006 after three members of their family developed health care-associated infections in three different hospitals in three different states within a 10-month period, sadly culminating with the death of their 27-year-old son. Their organization was created to bring a sharper focus to infection prevention within the American healthcare environment. The Nahums have turned their family tragedy into a positive tribute to their son and their educational presentations, inspire hospital administrators and frontline caregivers, reminding them of their most noble challenge and moral duty to do no harm. The story of the Safe Care Campaign's work has been featured on many national and local television and radio programs, as well as in numerous journals and publications. I also had the pleasure of seeing um, Armando speak at Shea last year. Together with the CDC and Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology, Armando has co-produced a patient safety video to be used as part of every hospital admission to teach patients how to insist on safe care through the practice of hand hygiene. Armando currently sits on the Georgia Healthcare Associated Infections Advisory Board and the Georgia Health and Human Services Antimicrobial Stewardship Board, and along with his wife, Victoria, and others, he's launched the Healthcare and Patient Partnership Institute to effectively train hospitals to achieve the stated goals of CMS Partnership for Patients in order to improve the quality, safety, and affordability of healthcare for all Americans. Armando's expertise is in healthcare and community-associated infections, communication, communicating loss in a way that successfully drives change motivating patients to modify their behaviors and the patient family experience. Armando, it's an honor to have you here today with us, and I thank you very much for coming. So we'll see if this is on. No? Can you hear me? You can? They're both supposed to be on? No, you can turn it on. Oh, you can? Okay. Hello? Yes? Great. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, thank you for that lovely introduction, but um, I'm actually not an expert in healthcare. Um, a lot of people say that I am. It's, uh, it's been a journey of 10 years, and um, I will tell you all of the things that I've learned in the process. So first of all, I want to um, 
really give a big thank you to all of you because <clears throat> I know how busy you all are. Listen to me, I sound like a southerner, y'all. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I really realize that your time is very precious, so um, thank you for uh, spending this hour with me today. Um, let's move on here, let's see. And? Helps to turn it on sometimes. There we go. So I have spent the last 10 years learning so much from all of you about healthcare and really the vast, um, I could say that the vast amount of acronyms that you guys use. <laughs> yeah, I thought I had a lot of them. Um, but I have visited hospital, uh, hospitals across the US and Canada um, and England. And if I were to summarize it all, I've learned that life is indeed fragile. I've learned that in the midst of illness, Excuse me, we cling to the sometimes secret hope of becoming well again, really no matter how sick we are. And I've also learned as human beings that our learning curve in life can be completely vertical. And more often than not, the kind of curve we experience directly depends upon the circumstances we find ourselves in. And so speaking about circumstances, I'm going to tell you a little story. That's me in front of the TV when I was a little kid. <laughs> and that's my mom yelling, turn the TV off, go outside and play. So when I talk about circumstances, when I was a child, we talked about last night at dinner, I was obsessed with movies. That's all I wanted to do is watch one movie after the next, one movie after the next. And back then, it was kind of cool because, you know, there was always a beginning, a middle, and the end. <clears throat> the good guys always won, right? And who do you think got the pretty girl? The good guys. Today is the opposite. <laughs> it's like, yeah, the bad guys always win. <laughs> so, unfortunately, um, well, fortunately, uh, you know, my, my parents just like, you know, turn that TV off, go outside and play. And my dad, you know, finally, as I got older, one day sat me down and said, you know, son, you, you got to stop this, you know. You really got to concentrate in school. And not that my grades were that bad, but they weren't that great either. <laughs> and so he, he, he tells me that he wants me to be an architect. I don't know where that came from. I guess because he never went to school. You know, never, I mean, my dad really never went to school, period. Um, but um, that was the, the supposed dream, to become an architect. OK, fine. You know. Well, back in 1967, uh, my family and I lived, I was born in North Africa. You all heard of the word Benghazi, the whole ordeal we had over there. I was born right next door to that, a city called Tripoli. And um, back in 67, there was a six-day war between Israel and the Arab countries. And we are Italian Jews, not that many of us, but um, they rounded us up one night and you know, after a month in hiding, and they put us up. Uh, on the plane, one suitcase each, $20, and shipped us out of the country. So we uh, landed in uh, Italy, country of origin. The Italians, and I can say this because I'm Italian, they're really wishy-washy. You know, it depends. If the wind goes from east to west, we'll side with the Americans. If the wind goes the opposite, we'll side with the Germans. That's the Italians for you. They really have good wines and good food and good clothing, and that's about it. <laughs> 
I can say this. I'm Italian. Okay, so, uh, so um, here we are in Italy. Not really, you know, we're, we're refugees now. But my father, who had done some work with Americans, <coughs> excuse me, decided to contact um, somebody pretty important. And lo and behold, within six months, we're in America. And um, well, going to school is really a lost dream because I grew up, you know, you're supposed to help the family. And coming here with $20, there's no money for school. So here I am looking to, looking for jobs, going from place to place, flipping hamburgers. And then finally I thought, you know, I, I got to find something else that it's, that's more rewarding than flipping hamburgers, right? I'm not going to be a chef. So um, I landed a job with a gentleman who taught me everything there is to know about making movies. He was a top-notch editor in New York City, took me under his wing as an apprentice, and here I am, and I'm learning everything that I can as much as I can. I was obsessed with that, and now I'm thinking, I can make my own movies now. Yeah, not so fast. <laughs> but, and that's my studio. Oh, I used to be my studio because I gave it all up 10 years ago to embark in healthcare. So I told you this little stories just to show you that most likely you all have experienced the same thing. Because in life, sometimes just when you thought you had everything buttoned up, it has somehow a way to throw things at you and just kind of give you a wake-up call. And it did for our family. So for today, I brought a bunch of pictures from our family album just to show you what a great-looking bunch we are. <laughs> nah, I brought you these pictures to show you that my family is really no different than your families. You know, we have Grandma with the mustache who likes to pinch the cheeks. <laughs> Uncle Joe lost his job, and you know, so on and so forth, and so and so, you know moved from one house to the other one. But ironically, uh, in my family, uh, three members of my family ended up with hospital-acquired infections in three different hospitals in three different states in 10 months' time, culminating with the death of my son, Josh, who was 27 years old. So, and this incident rate is of the greatest importance to all of us because it really, uh, here in America, because it only goes to underscore the fact that these infections were not just simply an anomaly. <clears throat> these deadly and potential uh, infections occur right here in America. I mean, I, I, when, when this happened, I was banging my head on the wall because I couldn't understand, are we unlucky? Is our family unlucky? And then I discovered that this happens over and over and over every single day. In a country that we have 21st century technology, we can grow a sheep you know, from a single cell, and yet we can't stop these infections from occurring again. So I'm going to take you through a bit of a timeline of what happened to my family. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first case was my dad, Quint. Uh, 
It was um, November 2005. Dad suffered. It was just before Thanksgiving. And Dad suffered a, um, what the doc said, minor heart attack. I don't know that that was possible. I thought a heart attack is a heart attack, but that's what they called it. And they, they took him to surgery, put a couple stints, uh, sent him home. Everything was hunky-dory. Dad was fine. And except six days later, he spiked the fever at home. And um, um, Dad ended up having a bacterial pneumonia. So something he caught in the hospital, brought it home. And it was so cool because he's doctor back then. Um, I, I didn't know this, but I've learned this many years later, that he kept him at his own house. Instead of bringing him back to the hospital and treat him there, he thought it was best to give him a you know, whole course of antibiotics, sit at home, sit at home with your own germs. You know. Yeah, his immune system was not that great, so, and dad recovered, he was fine. That's the first case. The second case was my wife, Victoria. And that was March of 2006. Except that Victoria's case actually goes back six years. So in the year 2000, kids are getting older. And um, she said she wanted to have a mini mommy makeover. Just the one thing, you know, literally. Well, I'm lying. Two things. <laughs> the supporting husband that I am, I said, of course. <laughs> so she finds a <clears throat> board-certified surgeon. She did her little research. Everything is hunky-dory. She goes, has the surgery. It's fine. She's happy with the cosmetic results. But a few months later, she started experiencing this, this whole laundry of bizarre symptoms started to happen. She started getting rashes that would appear or disappear, appear or disappear. One day they'll be in her legs, another day would be in her arms, another day would be in her shoulder. It's just crazy. And every afternoon between 12 and 4 p.m., she would have mini fevers. Not, not that high, just... just Baby fevers, you know, just enough to make you feel lousy. So she would wake up in the morning with her tongue stuck at the roof of her mouth, and she cannot figure it out. So when you have problems with dry eyes, who do you go and see? An ophthalmologist. Uh, play with me a little bit. Okay. All right. Um, you have trouble with... Joints, joint pain, who do you go and see? Well, I want to tell you, pick any ologist in Atlanta, chances were I've written them a joke. And the reason for that is because as lay people, when we have problems with our eyes, we immediately go and seek the ophthalmologist, right? But the ophthalmologist does not talk to the rheumatologist, and the rheumatologist does not talk to another ologist, and another ologist, and another ologist, and before you know it, you're writing lots of checks, and you're still feeling cruddy. Worse yet, you're now taking a bunch of medication that probably you shouldn't be taking, and that's because no one talks to one another. That's one of the problems that I found in our healthcare system. There's no communication between the care for the individual. We're trying to change that. So, 
One day, she woke up full of energy. She says, today's going to be a good day. And so I had just come out of the shower and I'd gone to make some coffee. And I hear a little crying. So I go back to the bedroom and she was laying in bed crying that she did not have the strength to pull the sheets to make the bed. And she thought she was really dying. So my wife is the Google queen of America. Red hair, Italian woman. She decided that she was going to, she had enough of this, and she was going to enumerate all of her symptoms. She thought, if I put it all in one, I'll find one doctor that I can give this piece of paper, and hopefully they can help me out. So she did that. And she found a doctor who was willing to listen and take that piece of paper and looked at it and said to her, Nah, Victoria, you're not dying. And my wife says, Ever? <laughs> he, says, no. he says, Not today. Not today. But he says, What happened to you? Is that she had what they called a trigger effect from her surgery. Basically, in lay terms, my wife was contaminated with her own flora. She was not prepped correctly for surgery. Now, we all know that we all have stuff outside, right, which is cool on the outside, not so cool on the inside. And so when you're not prepped correctly, there's a problem. And all of these symptoms that turn into now six years are becoming worse and worse and worse, and her immune system is really getting um, to go crazy, and so medications is making her a zombie, basically. She's walking around in the third person. <clears throat> so she, we asked the doctor, I remember being there with her, and I asked the, the, the doctor, I said, well, listen, um, what if we just, you know, we remove the breast implant? He's, nah, it doesn't work that way. He explained it's like, uh, it's like toothpaste out of, uh, out of the tube, right? Once it's out, you can't put it back in. And I'm thinking, I don't know what he's talking about, but in, to me, if I have a problem of something that I put in, taking it out fixes the problem. It just stands to reason to us, lay people, but not to him. Well, I told you my wife is a red hair. You can't tell them what to do. And her little voice said, remove these damn implants. <coughs> I said, fine, that's, that's the right course of action. She finds a surgeon, again, board-certified surgeon, who totally disagreed with that procedure, but agreed to, you know, she's the patient, agreed to remove the breast implant. I'm sitting in the lobby with my mother-in-law flew from Chicago, and we're sitting there, and the surgeon comes out with a tray. I don't know why he did that to this day, but I guess, you know, just to prove. Uh, he comes out with a tray. The left implant was covered, just totally covered, with staph epi biofilm, which was contaminating her left side of the breast for six years, uh, sapping her of her health, making her sick, and really robbing her of years that she would never get back. So today, she manages her symptoms with a little bit of medication, which is great. 
But we have a joke in our family because <clears throat> her she has so much energy in the morning after eight hours sleep that if she decides to go shopping, you know, women like to go shopping, no offense, but it's true. It has to be in the morning only. So in our family, we have a joke. Yeah, mom cannot spend that much money today. Okay. <laughs> so, all right, the next case, our son Josh. Josh was a 27-year-old uh, skydiver who was putting himself to school in uh, Colorado to become a child psychologist. He was a proud kid. He didn't want mom and dad to help out. Um, he wanted to do it on his own. Josh had done over a thousand jumps. He had one of the most expensive parachute you could ever buy. Uh, he had become an instructor, had done over a thousand jumps. But on Labor Day weekend of that year, 2006, there was a cold air density problem. As you well know, cold air pushes down, hot air rises, and it pushed Josh's parachute down uh, and threw Josh to the ground at 60 miles an hour. Josh jackknifed, he actually hit a tree, he jackknifed, broke his left femur, and the problem was not so much the left femur and as much as that the helmet produced a contusion in the back of his head. Upon arrival at the ED, um, they made a joke about the titanium club in, I guess, Mile High, Colorado. Um, all the kids that jump, I guess, sooner or later will have a piece of titanium in them. Um, but they were concerned about the contusion in the back of his head because Josh's brain started swelling. So the first thing they did is they performed what you call a ventriculostomy, which in short is ventric procedure. And so they drilled his skull and put a tube to relieve the pressure on his brain. And Josh was fine. He was lucid, he was talking. The problem was that that ICU um, had a, a couple, couple things that they were doing wrong, uh, several things actually they were doing wrong, which I learned many years later, again, unfortunately. Um, I bang myself to this day because had I known all those things that I know today, I probably could have saved my son. And it all stems from simple things. A window in the room to differentiate from morning till night. So Josh not only battled two cases of MRSA, and he won, but he battled a case of what you call delirium, ICU psychosis, which had to be, he had to be restrained, and he battled that one as well. Um, and he was doing so well. I have pictures of him and I having lunch outside with his walker and his therapist, that after six weeks in ICU, they came to us and they said, Mom and Dad, it's time to go home because Josh is on a good road to recovery. We found a rehab center down the road. And, uh, you know, it would take about a year, to you know, 18 months. But he's good to go. And we thought, great, we dodged the big bullet. But that did not work so well. Because six days into his rehab, Josh spiked 104 fever. And the rehab center was not equipped to handle cases like that, so they sent him back to where he came from. Now, please forgive me for saying this. I, I'm not here to bang on anybody. <clears throat> and from day one, since we started our organization, I've never pointed fingers at any single doctor or any single hospitals. 
But it is strictly my opinion, after many years of talking to a lot of surgeons, a lot of neurosurgeons, <clears throat> working with hospitals across the United States and Canada and England, I've learned that when a patient has a lot of pressure in their brain, that the first thing you should do is relieve the pressure in the brain and then perform a lumbar puncture. What his neurosurgeon did when Josh was brought back to the hospital, he performed a lumbar puncture first. Now imagine this. If you had a, an orange on a pressure cup and you punctured the cup, what do you think is going to happen? You're sucking part of the orange down. Guess what happened to Josh? That lumbar puncture sucked part of Josh's brain into his spinal column, damaging C1 to C3. Josh now has to be put on a ventilator. He can't breathe. Within two weeks, it went down to his thoracic, making him now a permanent ventilator-dependent quadriplegic. But again, that's only my opinion. And then Josh died two weeks after that. But he didn't die from his original injuries. Josh died unnecessarily for, from hospital-acquired bacteria. <clears throat> that caused so much pressure to be put on his brain that actually f was forced into his spinal column, ending his short but unforgettable life. You know, hospital infections, call them nosocomial infections, healthcare acquired infection, I don't care what you call them. They're very, very bad news for everybody because I'm sure that nobody here wants to see Another father crying with his head in his hands. I know no hospital wants to explain to parents why their child is dead from their care. Certainly no nurse that I know wants to see another patient that they care for and gotten to know die. No doctor that I know wants to feel like he or she have failed in their treatment of a patient. Administration certainly does not want for fear of a lawsuit. But you know what, more importantly than that? No family wants to say goodbye to the ones they love so much. And so throughout my research, the papers, the abstracts, the stories of the dead and dying, sometimes it felt to me like we were losing people right and left. And we, we just did not know how to stop this. <coughs> At the hospital where Josh was, there was a, a, a gentleman that I gotten to know, and they, they told me for short, it was, he was the IP, infection preventionist. I didn't know back then what, what their job was, what they were supposed to do. But infection preventionist told me infection, he was involved in that, so I asked him, simply, how did my son acquire this infection? Because the type of infection that my son got, it's even worse than MRSA, although he had that twice. It's a gram-negative bacteria that you guys call enterobacteriogenes. There's no cure for it. I had to sign paper to administer vancomycin directly into his brain, which they told me would cause seizures. But at that point, I would sign anything to save his life. And that didn't work. They didn't even touch it. And back then, 10 years ago, 
I was told that Vanco was the strongest thing that they could use. Maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know. I'll never know that. But when I asked the infection preventionist, how did Josh acquire this? He simply looked down at the floor and says, I don't know. And I remember thinking, how do you not know this? How do you not know what your patients get or where it comes from? But then the other half of my brain kicks in within seconds in San Armando. How can one guy at this entire hospital know everything about all the bacteria that surround here? It's impossible. And my heart went out to him. I felt really bad. You know, I told you we have the ability to grow sheep from a single cell, right? And yet, we couldn't figure out how to save my son from dying. So here's what I learned. If you take all of the numbers from AIDS, breast cancer, automobile accident combined, do not amount to the amount of people that die every single year from infections that they get during their stay in their hospital. It's amazing to me. So we met with the entire epidemiology department at the CDC. This is the number they gave me. They said 1.7 million. Actually, back then it was 2 million, but it's gone down a little bit. Thank God. 1.7 million. You know, I can't fathom that number, so I had to break it down to make sense to me, at least. You know. And here's what I found out. I found out that every single minute, three patients are newly infected. Every minute. The time it takes me to do this presentation is over 200 patients. Over 1,500 patients while you sleep. And let's not talk about a 12-hour shift. You guys do a 12-hour shift, right? Over 2,300 patients. So in total, every single day, 40, over 4,600 patients. And you know what? 271 actually die. These are true numbers. I'm not making them up. And to me, 271 people, it's like an airline crashing every single day. A big one, not a small one. Not like the one that I came from Boston to Lebanon. <laughs> not that one. A big jet, 270 people. So <clears throat> I used to play golf years ago with a good friend of mine who back then was the CFO of Delta. He's now the CEO. Good for him. And so back then, I called him up and kind of tried to pick his brain. I always heard, as a layperson, you know, I, I read a lot and watch the news a lot, and I'm intrigued by, obviously, the movies and television and all that. And so I reached out to him and I said, let's just explain something to me. If you have a flight that leaves Atlanta on Monday morning to New York City with 271 people on board, and it, in the midst of flight, it crashes. <coughs> And they all die. What, what happens? He goes, oh, my God, are you serious? I go, yeah, what happens? He says, well, there's an investigation. I said, okay, I'm going to give you another scenario. Tuesday morning, same flight. Flight 201. Leaves Atlanta for New York City, crashes. What happens? He goes, we don't fly anymore. Period. I go, wow. Where's that in healthcare? But then I realized something. In healthcare, in healthcare, we really can't have that. 
It's not the same as the airline. People like to compare airline, healthcare, it's not the same. The reason for that is because the same amount of people that die in healthcare, one is in New Hampshire, two of them is in New York City, three in Ohio, and they're all spread out. The media can't cover that. Now why should they? It's just the one person, two person here and there, but you add them all together, it's 271. But when an airline crashes, 271 people in one location. So every single station in the world is going to cover that event. And yet, same amount of people. Are people not people all over the place? I wonder. And so in talking to the CDC, they made a little analogy to me one day, which I, I just, they said, if healthcare providers and visitors, you have to include visitors, you know, patients, uh, family members that visit. Because uh, yeah. let me tell you something, I can walk into your hospital and within five minutes I can destroy every good thing you've done. Okay, it takes me less than five minutes. I can really make a mess. Okay, so there's a lot of need for education for people like me, family members. But if we all get together and we do just one thing, that, that that they taught you from day one. Just wash hands. And you have to do it prior to and after touching patients and or objects in the room. They tell me that we can effectively, effectively reduce bacterial infection by as much as 40%. I don't want to tell you the numbers, you do the math, okay? 40% of that number that I showed you, that's a lot of people. You got the numbers yet? It's 39,000. You know 39,000 people? It's a lot of people. From simple hand hygiene. I understand it's a theory. It hasn't been proven. But we seem to have a problem with just that one thing. I walk from hospital to hospital to hospital, and I seem to find that people tell me, oh, you know, Armando or Mr. Nahum, they call me Mr. Nahum, and I'm like that. It's Armando. I want to tell you, we have 75% compliance. I go, really? 75%? Why don't you have 100? What's the problem? Why can you not have 100% compliance? Let me ask you this. How many of you are parents over here? Parents, of course. When the kids come from playing outside, they come inside and they go, Mom, Dad, you know, I want a sandwich. I want something to eat. What's the first thing you say? Why? Why do you say that? Why in the world do you say that? Come on. What could they catch outside in the yard? <laughs> Nothing. A little bit of dirt. What are you going to catch in the hospital instead? A lot more than dirt. I'll tell you that. There's a theory out there. Oh, well, I'm going to skip the slide. Don't even get me going on this, okay? When it comes to money, you know, we could all have free health care, trust me for all the money we waste on, on, on this problem. They tell me it's 40 billion, but I've seen other reports where it's like three times that amount. So I don't know what the true amount is. There's a theory out there called the theory of sensitive dependence on initial condition. It sounds really complicated, but it's not. Basically what it is, is, is that first thing that starts something. Uh, you live in snow country over here, so picture the snowball that starts the avalanche. Okay? That analogy? Understand it, right?
It says, does the flap of a butterfly wing in Brazil sets off a tornado in Texas? Is there a connection? They even made a movie about this, actually, the butterfly effect. Has anyone seen it? No? Yeah? Um, some people believe in that. There's something that you know, triggers. There's another movie that was made. It was called Sliding Doors. You, know, you go to the right, something happens. You go to the left, you avoid that. What would have happened, something else happens. But you don't know that until it actually does happen. And in science, one extra chromosome does what? Down syndromes, right? Down syndrome would not occur without it. In the arts, it suggests that if you take red from a bucket of paint, you end up with, you end up with yellow you know, instead of orange. So just one thing, change one thing, change everything. To better illustrate what I'm talking about, about that one single component, I have a video here for you. Sound? truth. You did not like me on the first half. <laughs> so what the hell is he talking about? He said he was not going to bang on us, but here he is banging on us. No, that's not true. My wife wrote that. Um, and I put it together. We filmed it. 
And the reason for that is because we wanted, we were playing with, we, we were flying from one of the big Washington conferences. And on the way back, we were trying to think of something that was really cool. You know, words that would have the same meanings forward and back. And so we didn't change a single comma in there. It's the same exact words, same exact lines as you saw it. I think it's cool. So um, let's move on. OK. You know, when Josh was dying, my wife and I witnessed not seven, but 70 of his friends come to the hospital, really take over the lobby of that hospital for two days and two nights. I mean, I don't even have that many friends. And the hospital allowed them to do that. I mean, um, and the reason they did that is because they were allowed to come in two by twos for five minutes increments, just to say goodbye to, the, to your friend before you left them. I stood at the side of Josh's bed. And you know, you have to understand that Josh was on a ventilator. He's now quadriplegic. And his face is pointing in one direction. So I'm on this side of the bed, allowing his friends to come around so he could see them. And I had my hand on his ankle. And I, I, I knew that he couldn't feel me. He couldn't feel my hand there. But I think it was more for me than for him. And I, I watched these, these kids, I call them kids, um, they're really grown-ups, but say these beautiful words to my son, reminding him of special times they had together, or when 2 o'clock in the morning someone had a flat tire and called Josh, and he was the only one that go out there in the middle of a snowstorm and rescue them. But then it was over, and it was my time to go and say goodbye. And I can, I can say this, that logically, in society, we kind of understand that when your parents die, it's a normal cause of evolution, normal cause of life. It's, it's difficult. It's tough. But you understand it. The older, you know, die, the young one continues. No one is ever prepared to lose a child. It's just not natural. It just shouldn't happen. And then especially when the expert kept telling me that this was fixable. We can fix this. It's not supposed to happen. But it does happen. And now I'm faced with the task to go and face my son and come up with these magic words. I couldn't make myself take that first step. And now I'm not ashamed to tell you this, that I had no words for my son. I had nothing to say to him. There was no pep talk. What, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? You're dying, I'll see you in heaven? What, what do you say? And then I forced myself. I kept saying, now, Ronda, just open your mouth. Just say something. I 
took that first step and I got in front of Josh, right in his periphery. And Josh smiled big because now he saw my face. And yet I still could not speak. And so, I'm not a very religious man, but I found myself asking God a lot of stuff that day. I asked him to save my son from dying and take me. I asked him, okay, if you, now, if you can't, just don't, don't let him live that, like this. Get rid of this bad infection. Make him well again. Just do something. Never ask anything, just do something one time. That did not happen. And so I asked then, I just allow me to say something to my son. The last words. And there were words. Words came out. Words that I had for Josh ever since he was born. And I simply said, I love you so much. And Josh smiled really big. And he did something that was um, quite unusual. He, he was scanning my face with his eyes. He started out with my forehead and down to my eyes, my nose and my mouth. And, and I wondered if he wasn't doing that for a time and a place that we can no longer be together. I don't know. But then he's, he stopped doing that and he said, I love you too, Pop. And Josh could not speak. He could only mouth the words and I had to learn how to read his lips. Well, Josh died a few hours after that. But he didn't die from his original injuries. I want to tell you, he died unnecessarily. I know that for sure. I know that I could have helped him. I could have been a part of the team to help Josh. I've learned over the last 10 years that it doesn't take just you to do the job. It takes a village. Yeah, you're the expert. You drive the train. But we can show you things that you never get to see. Because we know our family members. We know. You know medicine. We know about us. And if we tell you that, you probably save our lives over and over and over again. You know, I keep talking about change one thing, change everything. I often think about that sad and awful day when I could barely think clearly enough to formulate or speak meaningful words to say to a dying son that should not have been dying at all. But trust me when I tell you this, today is a different day. Today I do have words. I have solemn and significant words and compelling meaning that I can speak aloud for myself, for Josh, and patients present and future. On October 22nd of 2006, my son died. He actually died. In my world, every day I live in has been changed forever. So I'm going to ask you to please listen carefully because I am here at great personal cost and because of an imaginable loss that I will never 
ever fully recover from. I told you the hospital infections represent an American healthcare disgrace that is killing us and our families unnecessary. I have to tell you that there was a moment, many moments, when I felt helpless and frustrated and pessimistic about the likelihood of a solution or a simple answer. But since then, I've had the unique privilege to hear from and speak with and work with hospital administrators, staff, committed frontline caregivers across the country and the world. And I want to tell you that my hope for safe care has been fully renewed. My vision for what can be for safe health care and flourishes many, mainly because of you. You are the experts. You chose one of the most difficult jobs on earth. You chose to become caregivers. And I hope that you chose to sacrifice quality of care for convenience or cost. I think in your youth, you probably dreamed of it. I think it was your wish, your aspiration, your very calling, your life's work, because it's really a selfless contribution to humanity. You know, I talked about through one singular action or particular choice in the care of the patient, that you wield the potential to save a person's life. And really, it's many lives after that, because if someone would have saved Josh, he probably would have gotten married, had kids, and kids have kids. You save many lives, not just that life. And it's something that you will never know, but yet it does occur. So, I want to say to you that the next time that you may be having a bad day, your boss is yelling at you, you didn't sleep well, you overworked, try to remember this time that we spent together. Try to remember what happened to the Nahum's family, and so many. I have many other patient advocates that bad things happened to their families. <clears throat> We do a lot of work together. So I want to thank you for treating us as partners in our medical care and for listening to us when we're seeking your knowledge, when you point us to great information, not just Google. And when you allow us to participate in our care. About five years ago, I found out, I read enough data to support that when patients and family members participate in their care, we have better outcomes. How ingenious is that? No one would listen to my wife and I when we kept saying, my son is talking gibberish. Oh, well, there's no window in the room, so he's messed up with days and nights. That was the signs of delirium. It is totally preventable. Does not have to happen. I think the next video is going to put everything in perspective.
What are we doing in time? Five minutes. Five minutes? Okay. I'm going to wrap it up real quick. Because otherwise I'll keep you here for three days. Um, I think I'm going to skip the slides. I'm just going to tell you something. For the last five years, uh, you all heard about the um, CMS Partnership for Patients, all of the changes the CMS is making and, you know, um, Pay for performance, you know, volume-based, all that stuff. Um, I think it's been good. I think it's been a good change. And a lot of people disagree with the Affordable Care Act. And it was, certainly was not perfect. But I got involved from day one because I attended the meeting in uh, Washington, D.C. when they were announcing the Partnership for Patient and they wanted hospitals to embark in this hospital engagement network stuff. And basically what it amounted to was that they wanted hospitals to um, start working, aside from all of the reporting that they require, but start working with patients and family members. And it was really ironic to watch that in the meeting because my wife and I were the only two people at that meeting without any credentials, you know, after our name, right? It's just Armando, Victoria, Nahum. And then you read everybody's name, and it's like, yay, long. You know, it's like, okay, you know, uh, it's great, but, you know, why do they look, like, dumbfounded? Like, the, these guys looked at each other like, uh, really? We don't know what to do. You are not trained. You're not trained to do this kind of work, to involve us in the care. That's not something they teach you. They teach you how to save lives. So we came back from that meeting, and we said, we need to help out. Because the healthcare community, all these hospitals have no clue how to do this work. And CMS is asking them to do all these things, but how, how do you do it? So we put a, 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 a program together, and it's called the Healthcare and Patient Partnership Institute, and under CMS, we came up with some tools, and we came up with the idea, which is really an older idea, it comes from the World Health Organization back in the 90s, of creating a form of a council, of a committee, 
that is comprised of an even number of patients and staff members of the hospital to have two voices, one conversation, to treat each other equally at the same table. You listen to us, we listen to you. And we work together on, on projects. For instance, I found out that um, discharge paper sometimes have the words SOB. <laughs> I couldn't figure it out, SOB. Until a person actually called me up and was really upset because I had done all this work with this hospital system in Washington, Baltimore area. And they called me up and they said, they called me SOB. And I go, stop, stop. Let me tell you what it means. They use a lot of acronyms. It means short of breath. That's all it means. And they go, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> These councils that we put together that we help hospitals like yours um, embark on this kind of work, um, for the last uh, four years now, have produced tremendous work. Not because of the work that I did, but it's because of the work that these community members and these hospital staff members bring at the same table. I have a hospital in uh, Washington, D.C. that has eliminated delirium for the last two years. Zero. Not one case. Patient falls. 80% reduction. It's great. If we could just reduce it by 10%, wouldn't it be worth it? Wouldn't it be better than what we're doing right now? I say yes. I have hospitals that are working on Cowdy. I have hospitals that are working on Clapsy. C. diff, tough. Okay. But we get them started. I know you all worry about HCAP scores. Let me tell you how to move those HCAP scores up. I worked with a hospital two years ago called the University of Chicago Heart and, uh, and Vascular Center. They have the best heart surgeons probably in the country. Not, not to take away from you guys. <laughs> they tell me they have the best surgeons in the country. I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with my heart, but that's what they tell me. Okay. They have the worst HCAP scores in the country. Do you know why? Those superior surgeons think they're God. They don't talk nice to their patients. You need a heart surgery, so you're going to have one, because I said so. All right, doc, whatever, you know, I'm dying, so, you know. But as patients, here's what happens. It's the nature of human beings. Here's what happens. You saved my life today. Six months from now, I'm out there running, playing tennis, I'm feeling terrific and all that, and somebody says, oh, you know, you, you, you look great, you look terrific, Armando. You're running five miles every single day. He says, yeah. I says, who's the surgeon? Ah, don't go to him. He's an a-hole. He doesn't talk nice. I'm, are you kidding? He saved my life. But we don't think that way. We want to be treated with respect. We're just humans, just like you are. So what better way to bring us together and work together on projects? And here's how I equate the whole thing. Because I come from the movie industry, you guys know about trailers? You know like you watch a, a two-minute trailer to tell you about the movie? That's what you guys see when you see patients. You see trailers all the time, one after the other one. If I come in behind you and I spend the same amount of time, I'm a, 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 I'm a father of, of, of a son laying there in that bed, 
morning till night, morning till night, for six weeks, I can tell you every single step what happened. I can tell you that nurse XYZ dropped that needle. I can tell you that so-and-so uh, walked in at that hour and did not wash his or her hands. I can tell you everything. I can tell you the whole movie. But you can't because you are so conditioned to save lives and you have so many patients to take care of and so much paperwork, God knows about the paperwork, that you miss the simple things which then turn into disaster, like my son. So all I'm asking you in closing is that you think about working with your community members and your family, and you probably already have, maybe you do have a council in place already, but they do work. And it's not the answer to everything, but it's the beginning. It opens up that conversation. And you know what we want when we live in a town like this? We want this to be the best hospital it can be in our community. We want to help it to be the best it can be. Because, you know, my children are going to be born here, right? And, and then, my, you know, my daughter-in-law is going to have my first grandchild here, and, and so on and so forth. And we want, it, we want it to be the best hospital. And you already have such a great reputation in the country that you could even move it up further. I know you can. So thank you for today. Thank you for listening to me. Appreciate it. If you have any questions, uh, last minute, uh, you know, but usually my presentation does not lend to questions, but I'll take them. <laughs>